Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Uh, this is a speaker meeting. I will speak for 10 minutes and then turn the meeting over to our main speaker, Truck, who will share his experience, strength, and hope. Mm. Okay. I'm only speaking for 10 minutes because this is the first time I've ever gotten up in front of people to speak at a meeting. I'm Erica, I'm an alcoholic. So I have my timer going here and I'm going to adhere to the rules. Um, So I was born in the Bay Area in um, Walnut Creek actually. What? What? (laughs) Walnut Creek, yep, yep. We lived in Sonol, um, which is like a little like uh, wooded town in Alameda County. So when I was a baby, I was brought home to this little log cabin in the woods. And <laughs> I lived there until I was seven years old and um, have a mom and a dad and a brother. And we were all like a really tight family unit. My brother and I have always been friends, never really fought with each other because since we lived in such a small rural area, we kind of had to be friends or we would have none. Like there were seasonal kids and then like a hundred kids at our school, which was kindergarten through eighth grade. So it was like, you just don't make enemies in a town that small. Um, I guess uh, drugs are in my story, peoples. And they're in my story from the beginning. Um, A lot of my family members are, uh, I have a few addicts in my family and drugs were always around like when I was a kid, mostly just pot. Um, and even like before, probably when I was about four, three and four, I remember my parents rolling joints and smoking them. And, um, I remember when I was about five or six in school, we had a discussion about drugs and how you need to tell the police if anyone is doing drugs. And I came home and told my parents what I learned in school that day. And I never saw them smoking cigarettes that were hand-rolled ever again. Um, so after Sunol, which was, it was like actually a really magical place to grow up, but I left there right in time because like if you reached puberty in this rural wooded town, you no longer enjoyed like hiking on trails and solitude and wild animals and you either joined 4-H and became a cowboy or you sat on the curb downtown and were like a hesher smoking cigarettes. So um, I'm glad I had a few more choices than that. Um, when I was eight, we moved to Lafayette for a year and it was like totally traumatic because uh, I liked to play with sticks and dirt and make mud pies and everyone there was like, the eight-year-old girls were like doing their hair and nails and like playing with toys that I'd never heard of. Um, it was really suburban, and it was, like, kind of a shock to my system. Um, a year later, we moved to Alamo, which was even more suburban. And um, But I made some friends with, like, a group of, you know, like, dorky girls. We all liked to study and, like, watch 
comedy shows on TV. Um, so I hung out with those girls for a few years, and then when I was about 12, uh, all my girlfriends went to Bible camp, and they didn't invite me. So like one day I'm like calling my friends' houses, and I'm like, um, you know, is so-and-so there? She want to come over and play? Oh no, she's in Bible camp right now. And like I went through all my friends, and they all they all ditched me one year. And then when they came back, I was like, what happened, guys? And they were like, well, you swear too much. And so, like, you know, they were basically embarrassed of me to take me to Bible school. So I made some new friends that year, and we started drinking when I was, like, 12 or 13. And um, they were always down to hang out. Uh so I started experimenting with cigarettes and alcohol, and it, of course, like the way juveniles do it, is always really creative. It's like going into the liquor cabinet. Um, my folks drank; they're fond of vodka, still. So um, we would just like they had a full liquor cabinet too, but the vodka was always like you take that, and they'll never know. Um, but it was a lot of like just mixing every alcohol. I remember once we tried to, we wanted to stay up late and drink, and so we got, like, vodka and espresso and ice cream, <laughs> and I look back to that and I think, yeah, that's like a, that's like a really disgusting drink that a 13-year-old would want. Um, when I was about 15, I guess, I mean, high school started, I was fine, I was already drinking, um... I guess I'll say what everyone says, like, I never really felt like I fit in anywhere. I mean, from the beginning, there weren't a lot of kids in my first seven years. And then when I was eight, you know, everyone was alienated from me because I was like the new kid. And then uh, when I moved again, like, you know, my friends kind of ditched me. And so I just felt like I never found my clique. And... When you have something like, when you're taking a substance and you have a bunch of people that are going to do it with you, it's like just a really easy way to fit in. And I hear that said here a lot, but it was true for me also. Um, so when I was 15, I started like hanging around with a bunch of hippies in a park and like most of them were homeless. It was pretty awesome. And, um, we would just like take mushrooms and, um, drink like kind beers and, uh, smoke pot um, and so that was kind of how I got introduced to drugs um, also when I was 15 which is kind of an important moment I was in high school and my friends and I would go to like football games every Friday and we'd like get drunk beforehand so this one Friday night I brought like a it was like a little Schweppes glass bottle it was about 10 ounces. I filled it up with my parents' vodka and took it to the game. And, like, we're hanging out in this park right next to where the stadium was. And I started drinking it in front of my friends. And, like, someone was like, oh, my God, she drinks it like water. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And so I kept, like, chugging it. And people are like, watch her drink it. And so I was getting all this attention for, like, pounding vodka. And... um I drank the whole 10 ounces. I was like, you know, a buck 10. And I blacked out. Um, I started swallowing my tongue at some point, which I don't remember. And I was like, just like, 
about to die, pretty much. And uh, one of my best friends and some other people had to drag me to a payphone and call my parents, and they had to pick me up. And I went to the hospital, and I remember waking up in there, like, I had to go to the bathroom really bad, and I asked a nurse, like, can you take me to the bathroom? And she was like, oh, wait here for a minute, and I was all confused and discombobulated. And, like, a minute later, she came back with, like, this, like, contraption. It was, like, a wheelchair with, like, a bedpan in it. And I was like, no, I want to get up and go to the bathroom. Like, what are you doing? And she's like, okay, wait a minute, let me give you this bedpan just in case. And so she slipped that under me and like, I looked around and I saw that I was like, I had things on my chest. I had an IV in my arm and I was just like, what the fuck happened? Like I, I had never woken up in the hospital before like that. And I, I asked the nurse like, what happened? Did I break something? And she was like, no, you drank a lot. And I was like, really? confused that you could end up in the hospital because you drank too much. Um, when I was leaving the hospital, the last thing they took off was, like, they they pulled something out of my nose, which I didn't even know was there. That was, like, the most shocking part of the day. <laughs> it was like, you might feel a little tickle in your throat, and they're all... <clears throat> so they had pumped my stomach, and the next day I was really tired and my arms hurt really bad from being dragged. But I didn't really feel sick. I didn't have much of a hangover. And my parents were just, like, coddling me and, like, oh, I'm so sorry you drank that much, honey. So um, my mom was kind of like, oh, I felt like buying you a, a toy or something, like a little stuffed animal at the gift shop last night. But then I was, like, re realized that you just got really drunk, and so I didn't. But um, I think my parents just kind of tried to, like, let that one go, like, youthful indiscretion. And they never really, like, gave me any rules about drinking or drugs. Um, finally, when I turned 17, I moved to Chico to go to college, which was a really wise choice. And that's where I decided that I had a problem drinking. I went to my first AA meeting there. I basically spent two years drunk. One semester, I actually forgot to pay tuition on time and got like, unenrolled from all my classes, but didn't know it, so I kept showing up for class, and, like, my teachers knew me, and I guess they didn't realize I wasn't, like, that I had been withdrawn from all the classes. Wow, I talked for longer than I expected, so I guess I need to speed this up for two minutes. Anyways, I drank a lot in college, decided to stop drinking, um, and I didn't drink or do drugs for a few years on my own, not in the program at all. Um, about four years ago, I found Vicodin, and I loved it, and it, like, increased and increased. And I uh, started taking OxyContin, and about five, five and a half months ago, after I had been trying to quit for two years, I finally um, broke down and decided that I could not do this on my own despite my best intentions and despite my really wanting to stop doing drugs. And I told a good friend of mine in the program that I needed help um, and that I can do it on my own and that I needed him to take me to a meeting. Um, two days later, he had, like, made the time 
to take me to my first meeting and he the whole time he was like if you need anything I don't have time to do it until this particular hour in two days but call me if you need anything before then and I was totally broken and ready to follow every suggestion and that's exactly what I did and like five months later my um I've gone from three jobs to one which is awesome way better than working day and night um, my relationships at work are much better. My relationships with my family are much better. The goal of buying property that I've been working towards for two years have, has finally come to fruition, and I, like, have a building. I have a lot of friends, and um, it's all because I've, like, followed suggestions and done what so many other people have done to get sober and have a life that is more meaningful than, you know, numbing yourself. So um, thanks for letting me share. And now I'd like to turn the meeting over to tonight's speaker, Trek. Already? Okay. Yep. Oh, stand. Uh, my, name, my name is Chuck. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, thanks, Hannah, for asking me to come out. Uh, I love Oakland AA. I think it's like the best thing ever. I got sober in Sacramento, California. And, uh, nah, nothing. No. Yeah. There it is. And, um, I got, and so I, I spent a lot of time in, uh, around East Bay AA, and I love it. So it's, it's really fun for me to be here. Um, I have a sobriety date that's June 27, 2005. I have a home group that's the Monday night Pasadena Young People's Speaker Meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet Monday night, 7.30. If you're ever in Pasadena, come on down. We'd love to have you. And, um, I have a sponsor. I, I sponsor, I theoretically sponsor some guys and, uh, um, yeah, I, I am like really tense. And really kind of manic, uh, a little bit of outside issue. I have like two weeks no smoking and like, no, no, and, uh, no, and, uh, and like, I just, um, I just like, like, I got ants in my room the other day and I started crying, like, <laughs> bad. And, um, so I'm just, just gonna expel my energy on you guys. And, uh, so, yeah, I, like I said, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to you guys a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and my involvement within. And, uh, I got, uh, I got sober in Sacramento. Um, I'm gonna talk to you guys a little bit about, uh, how I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was not in Sacramento, that was in Los Angeles. And, uh, I was about 21 years old. And what happened for me is that I got, um, alcohol poisoning. I was at a party in Venice Beach. And, uh, I drank a lot of rum. And then I drank more rum, and then I drank some more, and then I was hugging a toilet for uh, a long time. And uh, I hung out, I was about 21, 22, and I, I hung out with a lot of people who um, didn't really care, like they're the type of people that didn't care that their friend had alcohol poisoning like in the in the bathroom, you know? And so in the morning, uh, in the morning, uh, they, they, they're like, you gotta leave, like you gotta go. You gotta go somewhere else now. You can't, I, I have to go to work. You can't be in my bathroom vomiting anymore. And I said, okay. And, um, and they kind of like pushed me towards my Volvo and, uh, <laughs> it's Porto. And, uh, they, they pushed me towards my Volvo and they said, all right, see you later. And, uh, and I didn't know what else to do. So I got in my car and I drove home. And, uh, I was driving down, uh, I was driving into Hollywood 
and um, I ran a red light, and I, I hit a I hit a car, and um, and th- and this wasn't like a rare occurrence. Like I, I hit lots of things. I hit lots of cars. I hit uh, I, I hit lots of poles. I hit lots of trees. I hit lots of uh, lots of everything, you know. And uh, I hit a homeless guy once. That was pretty crazy. Um, he was okay. He was. Like, he said, "No, I'm good, good." And then he like walked out. And I was like, "Oh God!" <laughs> and uh, and so um, and so I hit this car and and. Uh, the, the best way I can describe, like, that kind of feeling is that I don't know if you guys have ever been, like, gotten in trouble and, like, your heart sinks a little bit. Just, it's like you real, oh no, oh, and, and your heart is, you know, like, that's what happened, you know? And, and I was sitting there and, and I was covered in my own fluids and, and, like, it wasn't looking good. Um, I saw, like, the, I saw the, like, steam coming out of my car. I was like, oh, is it no, you know? And then, uh, and my heart just sat there, you know, and then I got out of my car. And, uh, and I opened the door and I kind of like stood out like, and like leaned on the, the car door. And then I saw like all four doors of the car open and just these hulking Bahamut like construction worker guys like come out of the car. And uh, I was like, and then my heart just went poof, like that much farther. And I was like, Oh God, no, God, no. You know, and, and they, and they came out of the car. And they, and they, and they're like, bah, you know, and they're looking at their car and they're, and they're registering everything that's happened. They're angry. They're on their way to work. Like it's a seven in the morning. Like they're angry. It's like, they're oh. and then they look to me and they're like, God, oh, oh, oh my God. Are you okay? Like, oh, oh my God. And they came over and they kind of coddled me and they're like, oh my God. Like you need to go home. You need to take a shower. Like don't worry about the car. Like just go home and like, it's fine. Like, just, it's, it's okay. We don't even need to report it. You just go home and take care of yourself. And like, and I was shocked and I, and I said, okay, you know, and so I got in my car and, uh, and, and they went on their merry way and I, and I went on mine and I was like shocked. I just thought, I, I thought I was going to get killed. And, and so I went home and, and that, and that thing, like I said, I was used to those types of things happening to me. They happen quite a bit. Uh, I experienced a lot of consequences, uh, to my drinking. Uh, from a very early start, uh, they manifested themselves in new, creative, interesting ways every single time. And every single time they made me feel horrible and I wondered why I did them and then I kept doing them and, and I just, I couldn't understand. Uh, and so I went home and for whatever reason, you know, like a mixture of all the things that were going on, um, I, uh, I just, I didn't know what else to do. Um, I had tried a lot of therapy at that point. I had tried a lot of, uh, I had tried, um, psychiatry and uh psychology and, and art therapy and, and things like that and art therapy and uh and um nothing like seemed to really fix me you know and so i i don't know about you guys but when i was drinking i uh well not, not even when i was drinking but i had a girl i had a girl who was like my go-to gal for like problems i couldn't go to my friends with and i couldn't go to my parents with and like and, and I don't know about you guys, but like, I was very, very shielded of the things that I was doing. And, and it took a lot of pain for me to open up to anybody about anything though, that I perceived to be wrong with my life. And, uh, it, it was a, it was a huge deal for me to ask for help for anybody because, uh, from a very young age, I, uh, when I was growing up, I was a pretty self-sufficient kid and, and my parents just kind of left me alone. And, uh, and, and I just kind of went on. I just kind of did my thing and it was fine. Uh, I didn't really worry about a lot. And then, and, and as a result, like I didn't talk to a lot of people about what was really going on. And, um, 
And so the older I got and the more I started drinking and getting involved in, in these types of things, um, the, I just kind of held on to that. And as, as I started to experience some of those consequences, uh, it was really hard for me to, to tell people, like, this is what I did, you know. Like, these are the things I did, and I don't know what to do about it. I would just try and find ways for, for me to, um, to to deal with them. And, and, and I tried, like, a lot of things, like I said, uh, but nothing seemed to work. And so... Um, and so once again, I couldn't tell my friends like, Hey, like, like I'm like getting alcohol poisoning and like, and, and hitting cars and like, you know, and like waking up in places, I don't know, you know, where they are and I'm, and I'm losing apartments and I'm doing all that. Like, I couldn't tell that to my friends because I was afraid of what they were going to think. And I certainly couldn't tell that to my parents because uh, I, I was, a like I said, my parents left me alone for the most part. My sister was like, for any of you like therapy kids, my sister was like the identified patient, you know, bunnyers. And, uh, and, and she was the one that they all put, she put, uh, she got all my parents focused where I was just kind of like, you know, in the corner kind of deviously figuring out my own ways to like, to like live on a daily basis without wanting to blow my brains out, you know? And, um, and so, uh, that, that was, that was kind of the environment I, I, I lived in and, uh, and I love my parents. They're great. Uh, they did everything in their power to, uh, to give me the best life, uh, I could have, but for whatever reason, that wasn't enough for me. And so when it would come time for me to have these conversations with people, I didn't know how to do it. I had no skills to, 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 to say to someone like I'm hurting and like, and like, and I don't know what to do, you know? But I did have this one, I had this one friend when I first moved to LA, she told me that she slept with like Guns N' Roses, right? And like, and like literally slept with Guns N' Roses like the whole deal. And like, and I was like, that, that girl, like, she knows like what's going on, you know? Like she's someone that I can like go to with some problems, you know? Like she dealt with like Axel, you know? She can certainly deal with me. And so like, uh, and so I, and so I, I called her, I called her because I didn't know what else to call and I said, hey, um, I think I have a problem drinking or something because like this is what's happening to me. And she kind of listened to me talk for a minute, and then uh, and then uh, and she's like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. Um, I have a friend who is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this guy, uh, if you're willing, he will come and pick you up and take you to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous if you are willing. Are you willing to do that? And uh, at that point in time, I didn't. Uh, um, my impression of alcohol. And out, or Alcoholics Anonymous, rather, uh, was built uh, within the media, you know, built within TV shows and movies and stuff like that. I didn't really understand what uh, what it was, uh, what it meant uh, to go there, or anything, you know. And so um, I I didn't know what else to say though, and so I said yes, and uh, and that was it. And so I hung up the phone, and she called this guy, and he came and got me. And uh, just to kind of back up a little bit. Um, you know, growing up, like I said, my parents, they, they did everything in their power to, to give me the, this really good life. It was just me, my mom, my dad, my sister, and uh, I was born in Oregon, and we lived there until I was seven, and then moved down to Southern California and uh, and hung out there. And, and I was like this good, creative, like quiet little kid, you know, just really shy, and I wore a lot of corduroy, and like, you know, like I was a really good kid, you know? And, um, yeah, and... Uh, and yeah, it was, uh, like, I had this really good childhood, you know? And, um, growing up, you know, like, I, I, you know, like, I struggled in a lot of social areas, like, like, you know, I didn't even really get that good of grades, like, I couldn't, like, I made a lot of friends, but I had a lot of pro, I had problems keeping them, and like, I was kind of the, 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 um, I was always like the sidekick, you know? 
Like, like I'm, I was really good at finding the guy uh, to be friends with in like elementary school and junior high who is going to allow me the opportunity to not get like screwed with by the bullies, you know? And, uh, and so I would just be that guy's cheerleader. He would kind of be like over here and like girls would be like talking to him and he'd be like, you know, playing sports ball and like doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And he'd be kind of doing this and I'd just be like, yeah, you're great, you know, and just kind of like hide behind him and like, so like nobody could see me, you know? And, uh, and you know, one, one, and that worked really well for me. But by the time I hit junior high, um, all those people kind of like dissipated and I couldn't find them anymore. And I remember like the first day of junior high, like, like grasping at straws and like watching all the people I went to elementary school, like kind of walk away at lunch. And I was like, no way, come back, no way, come back. And who I was left with was this, um, this, 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 uh, Latino exchange student named Pierre, which doesn't make any sense to me, but he didn't speak any English. So it was him. It was him. And then there was this kid, Luke, who had a, some sort of disorder that, like, kind of like the Gary Coleman disorder, like, he couldn't grow, you know? And so those were, like, my friends, and, uh, and, and it was miserable. And what happened for me is that, um, I'm going to tell you about Natalie. And Natalie, if you're here tonight, like, I welcome you. But, like, Natalie was this, like, hulking thing who literally would, like, pick me up at lunch, pick me up. And put me into a trash can and roll me down the pe like that PE hill that the kids like that literally happened to me like some Calvin and Hobbes like Snoopy stuff like it was horrible and it happened every day for like months it probably happened like ten times but like to me in junior high it happened like every day and it was horrible man I got picked on constantly and like I would, like I was the type of kid like I needed like something I needed something to like temper all this stuff that was going on for me and. um and, you know, like, as far as drinking goes, you know, like, uh, my, uh, my family, they don't really, uh, they don't drink a lot. Like, my dad is the type of guy who will put beer in the fridge a week in advance, you know, in anticipation of drinking the beer. And, um, <laughs> and it would, and, and here's the thing is that my dad, he came from a family of alcoholics. Uh, he came, uh, from a dad who he buried of alcoholism. He came, uh, he had a sister who he buried of alcoholism. Uh, his sister was 60 when she died. She looked like she was 80. His dad, he hadn't seen in 10 years. Uh, he had wrecked every relationship, you know. And so alcoholism and drug addiction and all that stuff is a very cautionary tale in my family, but that was about it. Uh, I didn't really have any immediate, like, association with alcoholism. Uh, I just heard a lot about it. And uh, and and so my family was good, but the outside is bad. Like, do you guys remember, like, uh, do you guys remember that show, A Current Affair, a hard copy, like, tabloid shows of the 80s? Like, I had a cousin who was, like, in a Coke deal gone bad on the hard copy, you know? And, like, and, like, and my mom would kind of, she'd let these stories kind of, like, slip out every now and again. I'd be like, oh, that sounds crazy, you know? But, like, I didn't ever think I was in danger of anything like that. And, um, um, I was a good kid. And, like, you guys remember Dare, you know? Like, Barbara, you know, or, uh, Nancy Reagan Dare. Like, ooh, like, when Dare came to my school, like, we all had to write essays about why drugs and alcohol are bad, and, like, you guys are looking at the National Dare Prevent Alcohol Abuse, like, letter writer scholar guy of, like, 1987 or whatever. Like, I wrote the letter that was, like, alcohol and drugs are bad. Publish, you know? And, like, and, like, and that was, like, everywhere. And so, like, I was a good kid, man. It was not my intention to, like, do alcohol, like, do drugs, like, do cigarettes, do nothing, you know? And, um... 
Hey man, like slowly, like I, I, I developed like a lot of like my parents instilled a lot of morals in me and a lot of like this kind of stuff. And, and I knew that I didn't want to smoke cigarettes and I knew that I didn't want to drink and I knew that I didn't want to do drugs and all this kind of stuff. And slowly I started doing them to, to seek that relief, you know? And when I first started drinking, it was really simple. Like I didn't know really what drinking meant. I saw my dad drink beer and he would do it. Um, he, he would do it. Like not often, right? And so he, he treated alcohol. He didn't treat alcohol like he treated water or like cola or whatever, you know? Like he, like he treated it like something different, you know? Like I saw him drink these other things all the time, but every once in a while, like in specifically on special occasions, I would see him pick, like get, and it was just so lame. Like my first beer that I drank that I, at least I can consciously remember was the beer that he kept in the, in the fridge in the garage. It was Labatt's Blue, which is like Canadian water, you know? And it's like bad. It's just like so lame. I wish my first drink was like, you know, like, you know, cocaine or something, but it wasn't, you know? And so like, you know, it, it was like, it was Canadian, it was like Canadian water, you know? And so like, I would watch him though. I'd watch him take the Labatt's Blue out of the, out of the fridge and like, and, and it'd be dinner on like a Saturday night or something, and he would like, you know, it was a twist off, and he would like twist because it's Labatt's and it's lame, and he would like twist it off, and he would like, you know, just kind of like, mm, yeah, you know, and he had a different reaction than he did when he took like a sip of water, and I wondered what that was, and then I'd watch him like not like consciously try and like not drink the rest of it, you know. And, and that was really interesting to me because automatically it meant that, A, this is something that he's going out of his way to do that is like, it's like changing something for him, you know? And then, and then I noticed that he only did it every so often, so it had to be kind of special. And so, and so change and being special, that was what I was all about. And so that's what I wanted. And so one night, like, like I didn't do a whole lot as a kid in junior high. Like I didn't have a whole lot of friends at that point except for Pierre and Luke, you know, we know how that was going. And, um, and so Friday night, uh, Friday and Saturday night, I used to sit in my room and I had a little TV and, uh, and I used to watch, um, do you guys remember USA Up oh, all night? Like with Ron Desheer <laughs> or Gilbert Gottfried? They would like play like, like cheesy 80 horror movies and stuff like that. And I'd, and they would play them until like two in the morning. I would stay up every night and I'd watch these movies and I'd be like, yeah. And so I went to the fridge one night and I got the Labatt's Blue and I like went back into my room and I was like, okay, shh, you know, you know, and, uh, and you know, I don't know, like, I don't know if I had some magical sensation or whatever. Like, I really don't even remember it that well. I just remember that it was something that I probably wasn't supposed to be doing. And so I should probably keep doing it, you know. And, um, you know, la- later on da- down the road, like, I started experiencing some of the effects that we get through alcohol, which was, you know, provided, you know, all the things we talk about, provide like a social lubricant for me and all this kind of stuff. And, and it was great, you know, like, I loved it. I felt, I felt the ability to start, like, um, uh, you know, becoming a mesh with like my fellows, you know, and I, and I stopped caring a little bit, uh, or, uh, I stopped caring so much about what you guys thought and it was easier for me to hang out. I noticed that along that whole time, the people that I was able to start hanging out with while I was drinking, I started alienating them too. And, uh, and that was really, that was a strange concept to me, but like, but it continued happening as I kept drinking. And so, you know, moving on, like, uh, like I said, like getting from that point to the point where like I was calling for my, you know, for help, you know, to go to my first AA meeting, you know, like I said, a lot of crazy things happen, you know, um, I, I, you know, I love drinking. Like I really, really love drinking. And, uh, and my sponsor talks a lot about the idea that alcohol saved, saved his life. And for a guy like me who's getting shoved in trash cans by Natalie and hanging out with Pierre and Luke, you know, like Gary Coleman, like, like I, like I loved alcohol because it gave me that relief that like, I didn't know where, I didn't know where else to get it. And so, and, and that, you know, that like little boy, that, that person uh, with that mentality, like that was who I remained. And, um, 
And so, uh, things got bad. Like, things got really bad. And for me, uh, you know, like I said, I was put in a position where I didn't know what else to do. Um, I started having a lot of interventions from my family. Um, uh, this is after the, the A meeting, so I'll stop, I'll, I'll go back to that. Is it? So, I went to, uh, I, I called the lady and she, and she had this guy come and pick me up and take me in my first A meeting. And so, like I said, I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I just knew that alcoholics went there. You know, like that's all I knew. I didn't know that you went there to recover from alcoholism. I, I imagine that you would, uh, that you would, uh, that you would identify as an alcoholic. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, and like, and, um, and that was about it. Like I had no idea what went on there. And, and I, I think it probably at the root of it, I probably imagined it to be some sort of group therapy type thing. And, uh, that sounded okay. You know, like I just wanted to stop the pain and the, more importantly to stop the consequences. And so I, um, I waited outside and I waited for, uh, a guy to come pick me up and take me to an AA meeting. And, um, I, I was standing outside and do you guys remember like the late seventies fantasy vans with unicorns riding like wizards and like stars and stuff airbrushed on the sides of them. You remember those? So like, I see that van pull up in front of my apartment and, uh, I was immediately like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And I was like, that's not my ride. Like that's not the AA guy. And so then, um, so then I called the guy and I was like, beep, bop, beep, you know, and then I, I was like, hey, you know, I'm out front, like, just one minute. He's like, yeah, dude, I'm staring right at you. And I look and I see the guy, and like, in the front seat, and he's like, yeah, me. And I was like, oh, no. And so, uh, and so, and so I, I, you know, but once again, I was like, all right, like, I'm in pain, like, I'm going to do something about it, you know, like, I made this call, I'm going to do it. And so I go up to the van and I open the door, and it was like the skeezy looking dude who looked like really bad. And like, and, and I opened up the door, and he was like sitting in there, and he's like, hey, bro, get in. And he had like, like, like gross facial hair and like, like you look like you showered in a while and uh i was like all right and i got in the car and i sat down i kind of like looked around and i looked in the back and there was a cot in the back of the van that he had clearly been living in and uh i was like this is great you know like this is awesome and then but you know i didn't know what else to do so it's like all right skeezy dude save my life let's go to AA. and so we, and so he took me to my first meeting of AA, which was um uh this there's a meeting in West Hollywood called Log Cabin, and it's, uh, it's this really big meeting. Um, when I walk, it, it's like, it's one of those meetings where, like, when you go up to it, there's, like, the gauntlet you gotta go through. There's, like, a wall of smokers, and, like, and they're all loud, and they're, like, flailing around, and, and I just had to kind of be like, oh, you know, like, weep, bob and weave through them while I get in without any physical contact or anything, and I, and I went to the back where the coffee was, and I stood back there, and I just kind of, like, you know, and, and then I watched like some AA speaker talk for a little bit and I don't know what he said. I, I think he was from another state or something. And then, and then that was it. And then I went back outside and, and, and rainbow van like took me home and that was it. And, uh, I didn't go to another AA meeting for like a year or two. I don't know. I don't know what it was. And it had nothing to do with them, that meeting. It was just, I didn't know what I was doing there. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing there. I didn't know. I had no frame of reference for what I was even going through. I just, I just wanted it to stop. Like I wanted everything to stop. And, uh, and, and so this guy took me to AA and I was like, okay, well, AA didn't work. So like, that's fine. And, um, and then, uh, and then that was it. And, and I kept doing other things for a few more years. And in that time, I turned into what I like to call an intervention enthusiast where like my parents turned in, like they just turned into like people who just gave me interventions like all the time. And, uh, and it was really weird. And it was, what was even weirder is that I was this shy kid who kept to himself and my parents up until like around this time of 
uh, at this point in my life, uh, they thought like I hadn't even like, like smoked a joint or anything, you know, like, and I was out painting the town like 15 different shades of red and like, and just like going crazy and they had no idea. They found out how bad I was was because I had scorned an ex-girlfriend and she called my parents drunk at three in the morning and said, your son's going to die. He's probably going to overdose in a few days if you don't do something about it. And so for them to hear that, they were like, what? You know, like, what? You know, and so that began, that was my first intervention. That started my first intervention. And, uh, and then I, like, talked, I talked myself out. I was like, no, nah, you know, it's just a phase. And, you know, I'm going a little crazy, but, like, I'll dial it back, and it's fine, and I've got it under control. I can master this. And that little, like, and they were like, okay, all right, sure, go ahead. And, um... And I talked myself out of, I don't know how many interventions, you know, they never, t- like, I was always able to talk myself out of treatment programs and all, and all these other things. I, I tried some outpatient programs and some other stuff that those were like some strides I would try and make. The most I could ever put together was roughly about 35, 40 days, um, which, you know, in hindsight, most of the times I thought I was totally sober, I was still like, you know, doing other stuff or like whatever it was. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was, it was really hard for me to, to, to rationalize my behavior with like the person I thought I was. And it was, it was really hard. And, um, and so, you know, like, uh, fa- uh, fast forward a little bit, um, all, all the, you know, I was having all these interventions and everything and, um, and, uh, years went by. And in 2005, uh, on the eve of my 26th birthday, I hadn't, um, I hadn't seen my parents in months. In, in the meantime, they had moved up to the Sacramento area and they, uh, and, and they were like, they were begging me to come visit them. They were like, please come visit us. Like, we haven't seen you. We don't know how you're doing. Like, da, da, da. And so um, at that point, I was, I was like mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausted of living the life that I was living. And it was so hard for me. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was one of those things where like I really, I despised the idea of opening my eyes in the morning. And I despised the idea of shutting them at night. Like, it just, it was, it was really, really hard. And I didn't know what else to do. And I had I had surrendered to the idea that this is just the type of guy I was going to be, you know, like constantly failing everybody and everything around me. And I was, I was certain that that's what was going to happen. And so I went out there for my birthday because I didn't really know what else to do. And they gave me an intervention for my birthday and it was great. And, um, and so, uh, I got there on a Friday and I was supposed to leave there on a Sunday and I didn't leave until four years later. And, uh, and, um, they checked me into a detox in beautiful South Sacramento, which is a bustling metropolis, if there ever was one, and um, and it was like it was, they checked me into this. It was a converted convalescent home, and and uh, and it was it was like a yeah I know, and it was like it was like a two, it was like a two week detox thing, and uh, and the first week was um, was just kind of like a all right we're gonna like detox you because wow and uh, and like they had to like prop me up when they took my little photo you know and like. Do you guys remember that movie, Mask with Eric Stoltz? Like, not the Jim Carrey mask, but the other mask? Like, that was what I looked like. I was looking bad. And, like, it was, it was horrible. And, like, uh, and they had to, like, prop me up, and I was just kind of like, ugh. You know? And then they, they stopped, they, they stopped my intake because I couldn't, like, function at all. And they were like, we'll just do it tomorrow, buddy. Like, get to bed. And, um, and it was, it was horrible, man. It was absolutely horrible. But it was, it was weird because it was one of the first times that I was around like a concentrated group of other alcoholics and the like. And it was weird because I was destitute, like I said, morally destitute, and I didn't know what else to do. And I knew I wanted to change. Is that funny? 
And, uh, yeah, I'm just kidding. And, uh, and, uh, I was morally destitute and, uh, and I didn't know what else to do. So I watched, um, I watched these other people though in this detox and I watched them come in and out because a lot of people were there either on Prop 36 or like some other things and they had the options to leave whenever they wanted to. And I watched them do that. And these are people that were like 50 times worse off than I was. And I was like, Oh my God, like how is he doing that? You know, and it scared me and it scared me really bad because you know, as, as I stayed there each day, I started, you know, like the fog started kind of being lifted a little bit. And I was like, Oh man, like, like, I don't want to live this way anymore. Like, and this is, this seems like an avenue I can take to get rid of that feeling. And so, um, what happened was the second week I was there, they take you to AA meetings and, uh, and, uh, I'm assuming most of you guys are familiar with Alcabal, uh, Alcabons, the mythical Alcabon, like the lamest thing ever for like a newcomer who had like, you know, nine days or whatever. They're like, Hey, come on. We're going to go to like eight hours of AA meetings. You're just going to sit there for a while. And like, and it's 110 degrees. This is the 4th of July and life sucks. So sit down and it's great. Just have fun. Oh, and there's shitty food and there's shitty food. So eat up. And so they, they brought me this algodon and I sat there in the heat listening to AA for, it was probably like three hours, but oh, like two hours too much, you know? And, uh, and I was sitting there saying, Oh, and, uh, and then this girl walked in and, uh, and she, and she, and I was sitting, it was like a circle on the center here and she came in and she sat right there and I looked at her and I was like, oh, where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? And then after the meeting, I went up to her and I was like, Hey, what's your name? And she's like, Oh, it's Corey. And then she looked at me, she's like, Hey, is your name truck? And I said, yeah, and it was this girl that I had gotten like blitzed with in high school forever, like, like years and years prior in Santa Barbara where I, where I grew up. And now she was like at an AA meeting in Sacramento, like in the, you know, an Alcathon. Like it was weird. It's like, what are you doing here? And she's like, Hey, I have 90 days of sobriety. Like, what are you doing here? And I said, I got like 12 days of sobriety. Woo! You know, and she's like, Oh wow. You know, well, like when you get out, you should, um, you should give me a call. Like if you're going to stay in Sacramento, you should give me a call and I'll take you to a meeting. And I was like, okay. And it was weird. Like something in that moment, like clicked for me because it was someone that I could like visually identify with. And it was someone that like, that like didn't look insane and like, and you know, and like, and, and, but it was like someone I, more importantly, it was someone I felt just comfortable with a little bit. And so when I got out of that detox, like I called her up and she's like, all right, I'm going to take you to an AA meeting. And then she took me to Sacramento AA and she introduced me to the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in Sacramento. And, uh, and man, it was, it was the greatest thing ever. Like, like, uh, here's the thing is that at the time I was unemployed. Uh, I had, I was on the verge of getting evicted from my apartment. I didn't have anything left to go to back in Los Angeles. So, uh, I decided to stay in Sacramento and, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, and I started doing AA, like I started like, like I got a sponsor and, um, and, uh, you know, and we started working steps and like, and I started like going to meet like, you know, two, three, four or five meetings a day, just like Mr. AA newcomer guy. And like, and it was great. Cause like, um, Cause, uh, you know, it's like we talk about like practicing principles and all your affairs and it was really easy for me to do that cause I had like two affairs and it was like sleeping and going to AA, you know? And, and so like it was, it was really easy. It was really easy and fun and awesome and man, I loved it. And like Sacramento AA, if like you've ever been there, like it's awesome. Like these people, like they scooped me up, man. They scooped me up and they, and they showed me what it's like, uh, to live life sober and they showed me what, more importantly, like sober or not, they showed me what it's like to recover from a state of miserableness that I was feeling and that like, it's going to be okay. Like things are going to be okay. And that was, that was shocking to me. It was shocking to me and I couldn't fathom it because like, and I still, I try and think about it. I try and remember like what it was like for me because I literally did not think a day could pass without me picking up a drink or something else. Like I did not think that was a possibility. And so like, 
watching these people like show me that that was possible it was absolutely mind blowing and then it's like you know like like that was where I went to my first like uh, uh, young people's meeting it was it was my home group for like four years and like and I remember like I sat in that room and I watched like these people um, like talk about like being sober and staying sober and I and I saw this guy Randy and he had like he had like eighteen years and I was like that's stupid like that's a that's an awful idea you know like it didn't really resonate with me to, to like that 18 years would be something that somebody would want to have you know but i saw this one guy and he had like just under a year he had like 11 and a half months or something i was like like what is that all about like yeah you know and like and it was really attractive to me because 18 years I couldn't think about but like but almost a year of like not picking up like that was an attractive thing to me at that point you know so I latched onto that guy and he told me how to like he told me how to experience out like all of Alcoholics Anonymous and like he would bring me to like meetings early and he'd make me stay late and we'd set up the chairs and like and then we would sit down we would open up the big book and like he would read a page and I would read a page and, and like the magic started happening for me and man like my life has blown up since then like my life has gotten huge and uh and it's awesome you know um you know uh, do I do I go till nine or or eight fifty five or like what's yeah, the deal yeah 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 oh all right okay. So like uh you know so like I I I love my life in Alcoholics Anonymous today and it and honestly like the longer I, the longer I'm sober it's not easy to do that like like the more like I start experiencing the kind of like the material gifts of uh of being physically sober I start forgetting the spiritual uh, the spiritual footwork I have to do to like stay here and um and man and that's the kind of the thing is that like I try and think about it a lot. I try and think about like do I want to continue to be an alcoholics anonymous? Like do I want to continue to have uh, the relationship that I have with it today, like tomorrow, you know? And like and the and the thing is, is that like uh that changes like like almost like all the time. But but a con- but a constant for me is that like I feel like I want alcoholics anonymous in my life. Like you know, I feel like I want it in my life, and and what that looks like tomorrow, I don't know. But for today, like I love the idea of, of of being in the middle, you know, even when it sucks and even when I hate it, and like, and and I'll be honest, like uh, I'm sure some of you guys can relate, like like moving in sobriety, I moved to a place where like I don't necessarily enjoy AA there, you know what I mean? And uh, but what I, but what I found is that like I need to continue showing up regardless, because right now like I'm in a position where I'm able to like I'm able to go to a meeting every night if I need to. Um, and, uh, and, th- and people like, don't do it the way I want it, you know? And like, and, and it, that's kind of hard for me, but I found that I got to show up anyway. And, and sometimes I even got to set an example and like thumbs down to that, you know, but like, but, but that, that, that's kind of what I found. And like, and, and, and I've had to continue to show up in order to get like, oh, just a little bit of the benefits, uh, the spiritual like benefits of being, uh, uh, uh that I, that I, I so easily forget. Like I so easily forget. It's like I just said. Like, like I was in a position the night the night before I got sober. Where like my dad, um, would they, they were checking me into that detox, and he looked at me and uh, and he and he saw me like withdrawing on his couch. He's like, "What can I do for you? What can I do for you? What can I do for you?" And I kept telling him nothing, nothing, nothing. There's nothing you can do for me because really there's nothing he could do for me. And the one thing he could do for me, I would never ask him in a million years. But he kept asking and he kept asking. And then finally I looked at him. I said, yeah, like you can go get me that bag and you can put it right here and then you can leave the room, you know? And then, and he looked at me and he just kind of like stared at me and he stood up and he went and he got that bag and he put it in front of me and then he left the room. And this is a guy who buried his father and sister of alcoholism. And this is his son doing this to him. 
and, and, uh, and man, it broke my heart, you know? And that was like literally like a day before I got sober. Like, like that was the day before I got sober and I was already planning on like changing at that point. So we're not even talking about all the things that happened before that. That was like when I was on the road to recovery, theoretically, that's the kind of stuff that was happening to me. And it's like, I think about that kind of stuff. And, uh, man, I do not want to go back there. So it's like, I try and show up for AA even when I don't want to. I try and talk to people, um, that, uh, that have less and more time with me and try and like figure out how to better my spiritual connection with a higher power of my own understanding because that's the stuff that was taught to me when I fucking desperately wanted it, you know? Like I desperately wanted that sense of, even, uh, of ease and comfort that I got from the drink. I wanted that from Alcoholics Anonymous and I got it. So like, I want to try and keep coming back, you know, and you guys helped me do that. And there's so many people in this room that I respect and love tonight. And you guys have showed me how to like, how to do this deal. And so I want to keep coming back and I thank you. And and I hope you guys do too. So thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.